must say it's uh, it's really incredible uh, the enormous amount of uh, new cases that we have being reported uh, every day with the uh, Omicron surge that we're experiencing. Welcome to the This Is Reno radio show and podcast. We are streaming on most all podcast platforms and Reno's own KWNK Community Radio on 97.7 FM. I am your host, Bob Conrad with thisisreno.com. Housing affordability is a challenge in this community and it will continue to be a challenge in this community. Housing issues continue to be a concern for many Reno residents. Reno's cost of living continues to rise, and some community leaders say something needs to be done now. We went to the Economic Development Authority's State of the Economy event in January and heard more. If one out of four people sitting in this room today went and bought a house, we would have nothing to sell. Also on today's show, a national law that went into effect on January 1st has mental health professionals concerned. But first, COVID-19 continues to sicken people in northern Nevada. Health officials are reporting record numbers of new cases spurred by the highly contagious Omicron variant. Illnesses from Omicron tend not to be as serious, but the Washoe County Health District officer explains why increasing case counts are drawing concern. Here is the latest from District Health Officer Kevin Dick. Our seven-day average uh, for uh, new cases has been over a thousand per day over the last week. Uh, it currently sits at a thousand and fifty-three point four. That is over double the record peak that we had back in November of 2020. We're at about 220 percent of uh, the uh, peak level of November 2020. Uh, Our updated case counts show that on January 20th, we had 1,694 new cases reported that day. That's that's almost 1,700 cases. Um, If you look at uh, last year, 2021, from late November to mid-December, before we were really seeing the Omicron surge, it took about 20 days worth of cases uh, to get to that number of cases that we reported in one day on January 20th. We know that uh, we have a a lot more cases out there in our community than those numbers reflect. Uh, We don't report on the number of positives that uh, people are finding when they're doing at-home testing. And uh, we also know that there's a a big demand for testing uh, that's not being met right now in Washoe County. The latest CDC data shows a seven-day average of over 42% positivity. So that's a a very, very high positivity level for people that are uh, being tested and having those results reported. Uh, So uh, while the the numbers that we're seeing are are huge that are being reported, we know that there are even more cases than that out in our community. What we are seeing, though, over the past week or so may be a leveling off of the new cases being reported. So it's, uh, I think, too soon to know for sure, but we'll be watching that. Uh, But even if we are hitting the peak, uh, it's important that people not let their guard down uh, with this incredible number of cases. Omicron is out in our community and people have a very uh, large chance of coming across somebody that's infected, being exposed, being infected themselves. 
So uh, I think the important thing to remember is the best protection uh, that you can provide for yourself is to get vaccinated. Uh, and if you are already vaccinated, to get boosted. We have uh, vaccines readily available through our community. Most of our community is able to get vaccinated uh, through pharmacies and other providers. They're doing the vast majority of the vaccinations. The health district continues to provide vaccinations and those are uh, available uh, for people to get scheduled by going to our uh, COVID19washo.com website. Uh, also, uh, people are encouraged to go to vaccines.gov, which provides a great listing of all of the uh, other local providers, pharmacies that have appointments available for getting vaccinated. The health district reported in late January there have been nearly 30 deaths from COVID-19. They say most of those are people who are unvaccinated. Ken Clark is a therapist in Arkansas, and I spoke with him about the impact of the No Surprises Act. The act, which went into effect January 1, was written to prevent medical providers from giving patients surprise charges on medical bills. The act drew surprises, criticism, and litigation. Here is Ken Clark. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Chenal Family Therapy. That's spelled C-H-E-N-A-L, Family Therapy. Uh, we are one of the fastest-growing private practices in the United States, uh, four-time Inc. 5000 company. Also a private practice coach at semiprivatepractice.com uh, and uh, started a Facebook group about the No Surprises Act for mental health professionals called No Surprises Act for Therapists. That's about 16,000 members. What are the concerns with the No Surprises Act? You know, I think the big concern is is that most uh, private practices in our field are single person operations. Um, you know, when you're a practice of our size, it's an inconvenience. But I have 35 full time administrative staff. When you're an overworked private practitioner who sees six or eight people a day and then collapses and tries to take care of yourself and your family and do your notes. Uh, the idea of having to send out uh, all these good faith estimates and things like that is, is really onerous for the, the small practices. Um, uh, separate from that, there's a lot of fears that uh, this will uh, hurt uh, private pay clinicians. Clinicians have chosen not to be in network with insurance um, and or it is a uh, play by uh, the insurance companies are in favor of the insurance companies to force people in network as of, as opposed to letting them be cash pay and people seek reimbursement on their own. Uh, lastly, I think it, we fear that it raises the stigma around mental health that uh, when we give a good faith estimate for treatment, which we have no idea will it be three sessions or 25, uh, most clinicians are going to err on the side of, of um you know, what would it look like to get weekly therapy? What would that cost? Uh, and we're already hearing that that's running off uh, some people who really do need help. But when you show them that kind of price tag, that really is, is a variable number, unlike a surgery or something like that, uh, that it, it, it they just go, you know, never mind, I can't afford it. So, uh, so a lot there, um, but those are the primary ones. So it uh, sounds like what you're saying is that this is going to disincentivize the ability for people to get mental health care uh, should this pass in its current form. 
Yeah, I, I, I think there's that for sure. I think people will still seek out mental health. I think the biggest thing is it will uh, really hurt the landscape of providers and hurt access by uh, taking away all these mom-and-pop solo practices, right? Somebody who rents a room and sets up shop and specializes in, you know, teens with eating disorders or military couples or whatever their their cool niche is, uh, it's really going to make it harder for them to uh, be out there. So uh, in, in the same way that we talk about, you know, food deserts or something where there's not enough grocery stores, you're going to get these mental health deserts where it just becomes harder and harder for a private practitioner to do what they do, uh, and and that will dry up access, and that will really hurt the public. There's already waiting lists everywhere. It's it's hard to find a clinician. You start disincentivizing clinicians from being in practice or making it too hard. It's gonna it's gonna accelerate the mental health crisis in the United States. And what would you like to see specifically done with this um, No Surprises Act? You know, I, I think uh, the idea that um, – uh, well, a couple of things. One, the idea that, that we are out of – most of, of these private practitioners are out of network anyway. Uh, they're private pay. Uh, they don't have a relationship with the insurance company. Uh, so it feels like an overreach that uh, private commerce is being uh, uh, regulated and, and, and people are being told how to run their, their small little private practices. So I think, number one, in a perfect world, uh, clinicians that aren't using insurance, aren't interacting with insurance, never would. They, they wouldn't have to do anything like this. Um, clients are generally educated and, and understand how therapy works. This actually confuses their understanding of cost. Number two, it's not un, it's not clear right now uh, from CMS what uh, what's actually required on these good faith estimates that we're supposed to uh, provide uh, the consumer. So. Um, most of us would just like to say, here's here's what our uh, hourly rate is, and the average client might see six to eight sessions. But uh, instead, I think a lot of us feel like we're being forced into a position where we have to say, well, here's what therapy every week would cost you for the next year if you really did that, because the, the dispute amount is based on, on what you uh, put on there, right? Um, so if, if your estimate is not high enough, then, then somebody could theoretically dispute the bill. Uh, so that would be nice if we could just uh, put a range on there instead of having to uh, name a hard dollar amount. But number three, there, there are in-network providers, uh, and, and our understanding is the next iteration of this bill, the next set of rules that are rolled out, uh, it, it's essentially already written into the law, but it's just implementation, is in-network providers are now going to have to begin providing estimates of care to the insurance company prior to or right after starting service, uh, which uh, basically opens the provider up to all kinds of what we feel like is, is unhealthy scrutiny about uh, what, what services are going to be needed. How can we possibly estimate an hour into knowing somebody how much treatment they're going to need? And, and there's a fear there that uh, if you, again, say this person needs two years of therapy, Insurance companies are going to say, no way, we're not going to pay for any of it. And if you say they need eight sessions and they need 12, they're, they're going to say, no, we're not going to pay for those other four. You quoted as eight. So I think there's a lot of fears here that this will really, again, limit down access uh, to care because the providers are going to be more and more constrained to uh, guess about the level of treatment somebody needs to 
uh, overcome maybe a lifetime worth of difficulties. And, and so uh, we, we would love to see those good faith estimates not apply to the in-network relationship uh, people have with insurance companies. So as a provider, uh, this is silly that we have to estimate something that, that there's no way we can estimate. Uh, I'll, I'll also add that uh, these good faith estimates require a diagnosis on these before we even meet the client. So, uh, you know, somebody comes into our clinic, uh, whether they're in network or out of network, and we have to provide them one of these good faith estimates, uh, prior to the appointment, and, and we, by the letter of the law, have to say what the diagnosis is. Well, there's no way we, we know what's going on with somebody from a mental health point of view before we've spent hours with them. Um, so this idea, we're, we're essentially feeling like we're, being forced by the government to fabricate a diagnosis on somebody we haven't even met yet. It, it goes against all of our ethical standards as therapists. I, I, and I'll tell you, of all therapists, I'm, I'm probably one of the most aligned with insurance companies and payers. In, in my former life, I was a financial planner. I wrote an insurance textbook. Like, I understand, uh, you know, adver- adverse selection, finite pools of money, you know, risk pooling, all that. Um, so I, I, this is not an anti-insurance thing for me. It, it really is about a bill that was uh, correctly designed to protect you against finding out after the fact that the anesthesiologist from your C-section wasn't in network and now you owe all this money. Like, that's, that's awesome. We get that. And as therapists, I think we'd actually advocate for that because we see those clients who are struggling with their mental health because of of, of finances, right? Um, and, and even putting off treatment that affects their mental health in other aspects of their life because of this. The problem is that there, there was creep of scope, right? As, as we might say in project management, that, that what started as a good bill, it, it feels like they kind of just threw everybody in the kitchen sink in there without actually stopping to think about how this applies to, uh, you know, uh, small town providers uh, in Main Street America, right? Um, so that's the big problem is, is we're all about this when it comes to the ambulance uh, that you didn't ask for, that you got put in, you know, ruining your finances for a decade. Um, somebody who's electively choosing outpatient therapy, um, who is seeking us out, and, and we, we provide, under, under our ethics, we provide a very detailed document called an informed consent that outlines all our fees, anything they could be charged, how all that works. We have to do that ethically. So this is really a duplicative effort and and really messes all that up. So correct, you're 100% right, which is this is great for big ticket procedures, uh, things people didn't expect, things people aren't electing into. Outpatient therapy, this this feels like an absurd uh, hurdle for us in doing our jobs. So fair to say you would like to see uh, mental health providers removed from this bill? For sure, outpatient mental health providers. Okay. Uh, so, you know, again, uh, there's a place for this where, you know, somebody uh, gets in a really dark spot, gets suicidal, and, and you know, mom and dad or husband not knowing what to do drives them down to the local inpatient place only to find out, number one, once you check in, they're not going to let you check out, perhaps. Number two, you're stuck there for the, the duration that, that they allow for. And you may come out of there owing $30,000 when you didn't ask to go in there. That's a great place for this to apply. 
but that that's really again hospital settings you know inpatient places places that charge a day rate for a bed that kind of stuff outpatient mental health you know about your anger management at work we don't think this should apply gotcha what is the status of the bill right now uh, so not a lawyer, not a politician, but, uh, as, as we understand it, and, and what's been great about this No Surprises Act group on Facebook is there's, there's an absolute ton of people in here crowdsourcing this stuff. We require people to source their information, uh, so we try not operate on rumor. We, we do rely on, uh, a, a team of healthcare attorneys as well being a larger practice. So our understanding of the bill is that, uh, it, it went into effect, uh, January 1st. Ironically, most people were figuring this out uh, over Christmas. You know, the, the name is painfully ironic. So many people in so many industries literally have not heard of this, and it went into effect. Um, not sure who to blame for the ball drop there. But um, so effective uh, January 1st, which means you need to attempt to be complying. Uh, there's been stuff that's come out of um, uh, different sources, government sources, saying that, Enforcement, uh, especially on good faith estimates, especially on small providers and things like that, uh, is probably going to lag uh, six months or more. So we, we, our stance is you better be trying to comply, but, but you're also not uh, expecting people to come, uh, you know, ask for all your files next week. That said, the portal, which allows a consumer to file a complaint, uh, appears to be up and running. So theoretically, right now, uh, you know, anybody could be uh, subject to a complaint and and, uh, who knows how that goes. Our understanding is that there's other aspects of the law that will roll out uh, for outpatient providers and all that stuff uh, in in the subsequent quarters, um, namely this this good faith estimate to the insurance companies uh, when you're in network so they can turn around and do an advanced explanation of benefit. Uh, which again is a valuable thing, helps the consumer know, uh, here's, here's what you're gonna pay for care. Um, but, uh, we, we expect more, uh, I think they call them interim rules, interim final rules, which is a bit of a, uh, oxymoron. Uh, they, they expect those to come out, I think, in the next quarter. So. Okay, and I assume, um, your folks are communicating with your congressional delegations to maybe see about getting some of these things changed or, or what, what do you yeah, I, I I think, you know, um, I think we as a larger practice kind of accept this as a reality. Uh, I think a lot of your smaller practices tend to be more uh, grassroots and activist, which is amazing. Uh, so I think they're reaching out. We, we've encouraged people uh, when they're reaching out to, uh, talk about this in terms of the impact on small business uh, as much as anything, because the reality is uh, this is going to squeeze profit margins at a whole bunch of small businesses. Uh, you know, when you're a, a private practitioner and you got one part-time administrative person that now needs to be full-time to help you comply with this act without your revenue going up at all, that, that's a big impact on a, on a, you know, one and a half person business. So, um, so we're, we're pushing people to uh, really remind politicians of, of the economic cost of this. This is meant to protect the public. We actually think it's going to cost, uh, you know, the, the average small business owner far more than it's going to protect on an outpatient level.
Reno's skyrocketing cost of living has economists and business leaders worried. Mike Kazmierski with the Economic Development Authority of Western Nevada said there is much to celebrate in Northern Nevada. If you look at what's happened here, the key is diversification of our economy. Before 2015, we were essentially the same as Vegas. We started bringing in manufacturing and technology, and you can see how the bar started to separate. And then we got the stress test of the pandemic. And look at the huge difference now in unemployment because our economy is different. Our manufacturing workers are working, our technology workers are working, and our logistics distribution and e-commerce are working, and that really makes a difference. Hard to believe we're up 31% pre-pandemic on sales tax revenue. That tells you how great the economy's doing and why Washoe County needs to be so excited and our other elected officials on economic development growth. And then top cities for millennials. Who would have thought we'd make the top 10 for millennials? So that's real, those are some really exciting rankings reflecting the direction we're going. And I thought it was interesting to pull up a chart from 10 years ago at this event, where I stood up here and said, okay, we have 850 roughly jobs we're bringing in a year. Our goal is to more than double that in the next four years. And a lot of people looked around like, who is this new guy? Here's what actually happened. And it's not all Tesla. In fact, none of those jobs are Tesla. Tesla announced in 2014 and really didn't start ramping up their workforce until the end of that. So you can see the kind of growth we've been experiencing over the last 10 years. Also 10 years ago, we talked about the three legs of the stool. Everyone who's been to an event knows there's a stool with three legs. Hopefully you can recite it in your sleep. Now we've evolved. This is kind of our North Star. It's not, jobs are still really important but there are five different components of this star that we are putting energy into. Workforce development, more important than ever. We continue to attract companies, retain companies, and do entrepreneurial growth, but the community, you need a community that's attractive. You need a community that's supportive, so we're involved in community development as well. On the quality job attraction side, and you can see they're all integrated and really working together as part of the same team. We had a good year. Talk about 25 jobs and 25 new companies in the middle of a pandemic, not bad. 11 corporate headquarters, average wage 64,000. Brian Gordon with the applied analysis firm from Las Vegas had this to say about the local economy. What are we seeing right here? Home prices are through the roof. You guys are seeing this every day. We did the math. We took the assessor's file. We looked back over the last two years. If you owned a home, you got your piece of $11 billion from all the homeowners here in northern Nevada that have generated incremental wealth as a result of the increases in the home prices. So the question is, when does the music stop in the housing market? I think this is what we're all wondering, right? I think it all boils down to the fundamentals of the economy, and we continue to have people move into this region, which is critically important. We're seeing population growth. And if we look at more near-term indicators, like how many homes are connected to the power grid, we continue to see people migrate into this community for a lot of reasons. And a lot of reasons Mike will tell you about all day long why people should come here. But we are continuing to see that growth, and that's a positive, and that's generating upward pressure on our housing market. And what do we also know? Mortgage rates have been at all-time lows. These are through the end of the year, and you get the idea. Mortgage rates have allowed consumers to pay and buy a lot more because of the low cost of borrowing. 
Now we've seen rates start to jump up in the last couple of weeks, but if we, as long as we keep these rates below that 5% threshold, 6 7%, we're in a much better spot. That has the potential to start to dampen demand in the housing market if we start to see those increases escalate too quickly. And here's our inventory on the supply side of the equation. There is literally nothing to choose from. If one out of four people sitting in this room today went and bought a house, we would have nothing to sell. 285 houses on the market. Unbelievably low inventory. I mean, there's literally nothing to choose from if you're looking for a single family home. The inventory side is really creating that upward pressure that we're seeing on prices. On the left, you see the resale home prices. These are single family and attached combined. You see no home prices on the right, but continuing to see prices escalate at 20% year over year over year is going to be a problem and clearly not sustainable. And so we've got housing affordability issues and we're seeing it on the development side of the equation. The cost to build a home is not getting any cheaper. Land, labor, materials, all of those are escalating across the board. All those fees, costs, regulatory costs are going into the cost of a home. That's getting passed on to consumers. And what do we have? Fewer opportunities for people to own homes. Housing affordability is a challenge in this community, and it will continue to be a challenge in this community, something we need to deal with. And all of that increased wealth has generated more money and more spending for our state and local governments. We've seen a shift from service purchasing to goods purchasing. We've seen a lot more investments in those goods that are taking place, partly because of the pandemic, but you see a shift here. We've nationally spent about a trillion dollars more in the last quarter on goods as opposed to services. So we're seeing a shift there as well. The economy is sort of changing in terms of how people spend their money. And then where are we at here in Northern Nevada? All-time highs in terms of overall taxable retail sales. Consumer spending is off the chart. Right here, 31% higher than we were pre-pandemic. Substantial gains in terms of overall taxable retail sales that's flowing into state and local governments. And where are we seeing the gains at? Automobiles, anybody try to buy a car lately? Prices are up, but somehow we're still buying more cars despite the supply chain challenges that we're facing. Restaurants and bars are starting to get back to where they were. And when we think about online retail sales, Amazons of the world are benefiting from what's happened over the last 22 months. And we've seen those at an all-time high in terms of taxable retail sales. The job market, this is the one that still perplexes me from time to time. We've just gone through this health crisis and this pandemic, and we're still seeing a a job market in this particular area that continues to remain white hot. It's been asymmetrical in terms of the recovery. We think back to February of 2020 and where we're at today, we're up about 3,400 jobs overall. Pretty significant performance in terms of the job market. But like I said, it's been different depending on the industry you're in. The higher paying jobs have been very productive in this regard. And we've seen 2,500 additional positions relative to where we were pre-COVID. But Kazmierski also said the cost of living, lack of affordable housing, and the price to build new homes is worrisome. Most of you don't feel it because you're in a house and you're happy. It just went up 20% in the last year, year and a half. The people that are feeling it are people that are paying rent closer to the lower end of the wage scale and are newcomers to the region who really can't afford to live here in many cases anymore. It's also a national problem. I think we're feeling it more here than anywhere else because we're growing a little bit faster than most other places. But as the prices go up, it increases sprawl, it increases homelessness, it costs us in many ways. 
the city of Sparks, our more affordable community, 521000 for a house, median home price in Sparks. If someone had told me that even five years ago, I'd have laughed at them. Pretty significant and pretty scary, actually. Part of the inventory problem nationally, we're just not building enough houses, apartments, places to live. New record low this year. When you're looking at housing all over the place, it seemed to be building, and yet we're lagging way behind. What that results in, you see the green line is population. So we got 60,000 more people, and we're building less houses now than we were 15 years ago, and apartments, and, car and condos. We've got a huge gap to fill. Until we fill that gap, we're going to continue to see housing prices go up. There's a report coming out soon, pretty much saying until we get our, our supply and demand in balance, we need about 6,000 new housing units every year. Every year. He said housing and homeless issues need to be addressed, and now is the time to act. The average homeless pro person costs a taxpayer 35000 a year for the 2000 or so we have in the region. We're spending $70 million on this through all the uh, emergency room and the jail costs and all the other things it takes to manage this, as opposed to trying to help these people move to a life outside of homelessness. So our costs are somewhere around $40 million. Remember that $70 million number? It's a lot less to kind of fix the problem than they keep paying for the problem. And phase two is, you know, phase one, phase two. Phase one was the shelter and the land and the, and the uh, structure. Phase two is really the wraparound services to get people out of homelessness. Otherwise, we need some help to do this. And you can see where the focus is. A lot of it is the wraparound services, but it's also diversion or prevention of homelessness. People on the verge of homelessness, if we can get them services, we keep them from having to go into the system. For This is Reno, I am Bob Conrad. Please visit us online at thisisreno.com.